Så. You should just, sorry, are we online now?
I guess I have the right spot for the camera. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for coming. It's a, it's a great pleasure to open the second blockchain and innovation law event after the great success we had last year with esteemed speakers. We are looking forward to even better and greater speakers this year. Uh, we are extremely blessed to have a fantastic active colleague in the European Blockchain Center, Hans Broersen, who is behind the whole organization of this event. Uh, I, Front end can already kind of thank you very much for this for this great uh, work and uh, the kind of compilation of speakers. Uh, I will not take much more time over. I'm just saying hello. I'm the head of the European Blockchain Center. Roman is my name. Uh, for the rest of the evening, I put you in the uh, trusted hands and uh, capable hands of Hans, who will guide and also kind of say a few words more uh, through the program. Thank you for coming. Also the people online and on the stream. And uh, I wish us uh, uh, interesting new insights, great experiences in the sphere of blockchain and law. And I'm, I'm looking forward to our speakers and this great event. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Um, <laughs> thank you for coming, everybody. Uh, I think the, the, due to the weather, it's a little bit hard uh, to sit yourself into a lecture hall and listen to something so complicated uh, as a blockchain and innovation law. Uh, as Roman said, my name is uh, Hans Borsen and uh, I'm an attorney at law in Berlin and I also have the privilege of being a research fellow here at the European Blockchain Center. Uh, I'm super happy uh, to be hosting uh, this event this year again after last year's success. Um, this is especially true uh, since the topic um, of the intersection between blockchain and law is a bit of a special one. Uh, please uh, let me uh, quickly elaborate uh, why, even though very special, uh, it is quite necessary. Uh, all groundbreaking uh, innovations, maybe blockchain or AI, um, possess uh, basically uh, three societal notions. Um, they may be of very great danger. That's uh, a very German approach, maybe. Um, they may, uh, the second notion is uh, that they may uh, solve all our problems and everybody gets rich. That's you know, a very American uh, notion, rather. And then uh, there's everything in between. Uh, I think that's the historically correct uh, interpretation. 
but uh, no matter whether the, the movement of innovation uh, is good, bad or both, uh, a democratic society uh, will have to come up with a solution or approach um, to the developments. If the development is great, you basically have to do nothing and can just enjoy yourself. If the development is bad, you may need uh, harsh regulations. If it's both, maybe you need a bit of regulation. Uh, and in order to find uh, the right approach, uh, a society will have to have uh, a profound debate. And for such a profound debate about uh, also very complicated issues, we need expert knowledge in the intersection between innovation and the rules surrounding it. And uh, I'm so very happy that exactly these experts are here uh, tonight. Uh, and I welcome very much uh, Professor Timo Minzen, uh, founding director of the Center for Advanced Studies in Biomedical Innovation Law at Copenhagen University. Uh, also uh, associate professor Christine Kostik-Kenay from the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. Then uh, we have uh, postdoc Katrin Steinmans uh, from the Center for Private Governance at Copenhagen University. And uh, we have uh, Dr. Christian Tenkhoff, a partner at the law firm Taylor Wessing in Munich. And um, before we start off, uh, I would also like to say thank you very much, uh, Annie Tangle, Arne, uh, for uh, sponsoring this event. Uh, very quickly, the program for tonight, um, the three experts will uh, give a lecture. We will have the live stream first with uh, Timo and Christine. Um, then there will be like a short question round. And then uh, we will go on uh, with Katrin and then Christian. We will have a, a bit of a discussion afterwards. Then there's a, a little bit of a surprise. And then afterwards there are drinks. <laughs> Uh, and we start off uh, with uh, Christine and Timo. Uh, and uh, I will just uh, put you up on the screen now, Timo and Christine, and then um, basically the floor is yours. Wonderful. Thank you, Hans. Hello, everybody. Um, so it says I cannot share my screen. It says host disabled participant screen sharing. Does it work now? Would you mind? Let's see. Yes, it does. Can everybody see that okay? Great. Well, yes. hello everyone. Um, thank you so much, Hans, and thanks for inviting me and uh, Dr. Minson to talk about some of the promises and challenges of using NFTs for health information exchange. Um, my name is Kristen Kostik-Kinney as Hans introduced us, um, and I work at the Center for Medical Ethics and Health Policy at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. And this talk is uh, based on an article that Dr. Minson and I published in Science this past February with a group of colleagues, kind of all from different professional backgrounds, so bioethics, uh, health law, health information exchange systems, and my background, medical anthropology. And it was this kind of interdisciplinary perspective that framed our understanding of how smart contracts might help to address what we view as some of the primary ethical challenges 
and health information exchange. So I'll just describe those major challenges first and then explain um, how smart contracts, the technology underlying NFTs might be particularly suited to address them. So one main problem is that um, the average person, so you and me included uh, probably, has essentially no idea where our health data is going, who's using it, and for what purposes. So whenever we go to the doctor or participate in a research study, we, we have no choice but to put a huge amount of trust in healthcare providers and researchers and even governments to be responsible stewards of our data. Um, and once collected, our personal health information is often shared quite extensively without our knowledge or explicit consent. And a large part of this data sharing is for the purposes of research and development um, and healthcare innovation and uh, public health improvement, things that most of us would probably consent to if given the opportunity, because we, we recognize that advancements in medicine and genomics and risk prediction, AI, and other areas in medicine critically depend on our willingness to share our data. Uh, but a big problem is that patients actually don't get to make these decisions or even to participate in them in any kind of really meaningful way beyond just kind of checking a box on a, on a consent form, agreeing to kind of secondary uses down the road. Um, our most common forms of consent, so broad consent and dynamic consent, they haven't really caught up to the, the growing capacity to store and repurpose and create value from, from data at future time points or even for purposes that haven't even been you know, conceptualized yet. Um, so this is the first problem that our current consent models require tremendous amounts of kind of blind trust, offering almost no means of controlling or even, even seeing what's happening to our health data. So a key challenge then is how can we engage individuals with the right tools and technology, some of which we already have at our disposal, some of which we might need to innovate so that they can participate more in these ongoing decisions about secondary uses of health data. Um, and a second problem is that our current laws and regulations, so um, HIPAA in the United States, uh, the FTC, um, and even the GDPR in Europe, don't always support patient privacy in ways that would limit uh, big corporations and other entities from accessing and using sensitive health information in ways that aren't expressly for the purpose of patient benefit. Um, and as we all know, there's a growing suite of algorithmic technologies that are being used to re-identify personal health information to feed what's now a pretty lucrative data exchange market marketplace. So, um, and as health data becomes more digital, um, this becomes easier and easier. So even just a few seconds recording of our voice can become part of our kind of digital footprint leading back to our identity online. And as health data continues to become more granular and more personalized, anything from you know radiological imaging to heart rate information, brain activity, sleep patterns, all of this could, could potentially lead back to you. So. Um, this is important from an ethical perspective because by triangulating our health information with information across all these other platforms and devices, um, marketers and, and other entities can build a, a kind of broader profile of our health status, potentially our disabilities, our job, um, our interests, our voting patterns, purchase history, um, and, and this kind of profiling is powerful easily monetized, um, wildly profitable, and the, the limits on what you can do with it are open-ended. So just a very quick example of how this can kind of quickly turn nefarious. Uh, the American Medical Association, which most people associate with uh, doctors kind of acting benevolently in the interest of patients, um, sold certain physician data to pharmaceutical companies that allowed those companies to match uh, physicians to their prescribing data collected by pharmacies. Um, 
And one of those pharmacy companies, you might, one of those pharma companies, uh, you might recognize the name Purdue Pharma, which produced Oxycontin, was officially charged in court for sowing the seeds of the opioid crisis um, by, among many other uh, means, but by encouraging doctors to overprescribe. So by triangulating data in this way, they were able to identify so-called soft targets um, of high prescribers of pain meds and therefore um, prey on, I don't know if that's the right word, but profit from definitely uh, uh, from patients through their doctors. So this is just to say that all types of medical data are powerful and in cases like we've seen with the opioid crisis, potentially deadly if put in the wrong hands. Um, and like I said before, there there's really few legal protections in the United States or in the EU to guard against this kind of re-identification. Um, so both HIPAA, which is, a, of course, a piece of legislation that was passed in 1996, so quite a long time ago, um, and the GDPR both allow exchange of data as long as it's de-identified, but neither can really protect it against that re-identification once the data is, is just out there. Um, and in fact, the Supreme Court ruled um, in another high-profile case in Vermont um, that it's actually unconstitutional to prohibit the sale, disclosure, or triangulation or use of records um, and data that can reveal potentially sensitive and actionable information because such a prohibition violates the First Amendment guaranteeing free speech. Um, so that was a surprise to me. Um, so to summarize the challenges, uh, not only are meaningful consent mechanisms lacking, but also um, technologies are increasingly enabling potential harmful re-identification. And then on top of that, uh, forms of legal redress are kind of non-existent because these data sharing practices aren't even considered to be illegal, at least not in the United States. Um, so that to me and to us begs the question, what are individuals left with um, to protect themselves and their data if we can't turn to the uh, these legal protections? So we published this paper as a kind of um, call to consider the potentials of using more computational mechanisms. So in this case, NFT type smart contracts um, to kind of fill these legal gaps and to help individuals regain some kind of control over their health information, um, starting modestly, of course. Um, and as it happened, there was this you know, great media frenzy. Everybody took note uh, around NFTs when we wrote this paper. So that kind of offered us an opportunity to bring more attention to this idea. And so basically that idea was that, um, so smart contracts at a basic level are fairly simple tools, um, just to go over some of their features, which given the audience, most of you already know this. Um, so they're essentially these tiny computer programs that are linked by URL to wherever a piece of data is stored. And, and they automatically execute, they can automatically execute a command based on pre-specified if-then conditions. So for example, if a data requester meets the criteria for data sharing outlined in a smart contract, then access can be automatically granted, um, enabling a, a more efficient transaction without the need for a third-party mediator. And then the fact that these transactions are documented on a blockchain means that they're transparent they're auditable and immutable. So given these capacities, uh, patients could use smart contracts to consent in advance, what people are calling prosent, uh, to certain data sharing scenarios that align with their values and preferences. And then the terms of those contracts, in theory, could be, could be highly granular, personalized, um, much more so than um, our current consent models. So, um, and then based on the terms in the smart contract, certain data requesters would be automatically granted access while others would be refused access. And this would 
presumably enhance the overall efficiency of, of the health information exchange system, kind of cutting out that need for third-party custodians and data brokers. Um, and in this way, you know, it would be patients rather than this, this small set of powerful players that are currently dominating the health information exchange marketplace um, who would be setting the terms of those transactions involving, uh, involving people's data, um, helping to democratize data exchange. Um, and smart contracts could also be combined with other privacy by design and decentralized learning framework, things like federated learning, swarm learning, things like that, um, where smart contracts act as a kind of um, on-off switch, so kind of granting or prohibiting access as an algorithm kind of passes through a data set. Um, so, and then they could also potentially enable automatic return of results uh, without re-identification or needing to recontact research participants, which I'll... Uh, all people who have tried to do that know that that's a very time-consuming uh, process. So, um, and then also given their nature as metadata, um, smart contracts could potentially help with data indexing. So helping to maybe flag certain uh, data types of specific interest, or maybe that has uh, substantial market value. So with all of these technical capacities, um, smart contracts, they seem to have a ton of potential for helping to establish a kind of infrastructure for transparency. But we don't really know yet how this would be received by patients and other stakeholders, um, how it would be implemented and what the impacts are. Um, so just as a thought experiment, you know, if patients could more easily visualize their transactions involving their data, something that I could maybe pull up on a phone or, you know, um, uh, on a, a website, you know, using an API, and potentially maybe even one day participate in decisions around those transactions, um, would they be more inclined to share their data knowing, knowing that they have some kind of stake or some ability to control who, who gets to see it, who doesn't? Um, but we could you know, equally envision the, the opposite effect where it might scare people off or make things seem overly complicated, too granular, more of a decisional burden um, so that patients just refuse all sharing um, outright which of course is, is the opposite of what we would want. Um, but I do wonder what would, what would happen, uh, you know, maybe actually seeing what's happening to your data might spark a kind of larger conversation as a society too, about how much we're willing to accept just kind of pouring our data out there indefinitely without asking any questions. So these are issues that my research team at Baylor and I are exploring right now through an NIH funded grant to identify uh, various incentives and disincentives around using smart contracts in healthcare and clinical research. So, and, and that study is really based on um, an acknowledgement that for NFTs to achieve these, any of these potentials, a lot of other goals and incentives need to be aligned, of course. Um, and that's something we highlighted in our paper as well. Um, so for example, some people might fear that giving patients too much control might lead them to expect forms of compensation for their data, so financial or otherwise. And um, that could potentially limit access by researchers and developers and stymie innovation. Uh, we don't wanna go in that direction either. Um, and then, of course, there are going to be those who fear that democratizing data sharing decisions too much will undermine existing power dynamics and in, in health information exchange, which we all know are very lucrative and might make it harder to profit from patient data. So any implementation of smart contracts would need seriously strong incentives, I think, and buy-in from all stakeholders, um, not just patients, right? So EHR companies, industry, hospitals physicians too, who are very busy and who would have to be instituting them probably at the point of care. And then of course, patients. Um, 
So those are the types of things we're exploring. Um, and then you'd also need supportive security infrastructures. Um, so the data that smart contracts would point to would have to be safely stored, encrypted, with no kind of access workarounds, uh, which would defeat the purpose of having an NFT governing access in the first place, right? Um, and then finally, you need supportive legal frameworks. Um, and one of the most promising um, that I know of anyway, um, and I'd love to hear everybody else's perspectives on this, but is the recently proposed Data Governance Act, uh, which tries to address this kind of need to balance transparency, trust, data sharing, innovation, um, with the basic premise that if governments can create trustworthy technological and social legal infrastructures for data exchange, um, then people and, and institutions will be more encouraged to engage in data altruism. So essentially, you know, voluntary sharing of data for good or at least societal, societally approved purposes. Um, and to my knowledge, the EU is the first to devise legislation suggesting that public funds should be used to improve the trustworthiness and transparency of data exchange systems. Um, and the view expressed in our paper, um, or implied, I should say, um, is that smart contracts should be among those technologies that are explored in these contexts to help increase transparency and trustworthiness. So. This is where I'd like to turn over the presentation to Dr. Minson so he can share his expertise and discuss some um, other legal issues for us to consider. So thank you very much, Timo. Yes, I hope you all can hear me. Thank you so much, Christine, for doing the heavy lift here already. So I will just add a few words. And also before um, I continue, I just wanted to say thank you for inviting me. And I'm very sorry that I can only stay with you for a very short time because today's day of a very big grant application that I need to submit. So I need to uh, run right after this presentation. Good, but Christine, you already uh, talked about many things, um, also legal issues here. So I will just uh, maybe add a few more. So um, one issue is the issue of IP rights, right? Who is legally controlling the personal health information has the right to share or sell it? So a major advantage of NFTs when discussed in the art world is their verification and authenticity and originality. So originality may be less of a concern for health information exchange, but many entities seeking to use personal health information may not care about the originality of the data. They just care whether those data are accurate representations of a patient's personal health information. Storing a patient's health data as an NFT could help to verify its provenance and accuracy. However, it also raises important questions about who legally controls personal health information and has the right to share or sell it. And the answer is not straightforward. So intellectual property rights, like copyrights, patents, and so on, they, um, and, and, and especially copyrights over creative works, usually lie with an artist or, in certain cases, with companies that create digital information. By contrast, person, person, personal health information is often thought of as uh, collected or generated through the use of technology rather than created, thus lacking the originality typically required for copyright protection. Once collected or generated and organized by hospitals, device manufacturers or pharmaceutical companies, those data may become the property of the data collector, not the patient. And entities that eventually develop clinical follow-on innovations based on data stored as NFTs may also claim some form of other IPRs, such as patents, if there's a technical solution to a problem, for example, trade secrets, or, for example, regulatory exclusivities. 
And because rights over health data remain complex and contested, NFTs may be most useful for specifying collaboratively agreed upon conditions for exchange and reciprocity, if not direct ownership. And given the complexity of NFTs, there's another issue, and that is the issue of sustainability, equity, and trust. Um, because given the complexity of NFTs and the legal structure, it is unclear whether the, whether the average citizen will be able to take advantage of them in the health space. Most people will need the aid of trusted intermediaries to mint their data and manage private keys. They will also need user-friendly interfaces to interpret requests and transaction ledgers. In addition, patients will need legal support to create smart contracts that serve their interests that Christine talked about before. And ironically, this need for intermediaries could be a slippery slope back to the centralization of personal health information. If these intermediaries are costly, socioeconomic factors will act as gatekeepers for digital ledger citizenship, ex exacerbating existing digital device and participation gaps. So that is a true concern that we lawyers have. And what about then uh, NFTs as a means of financial compensation? And this has also been criticized in literature, for example, by Prainsec and Forgo. And these authors argue, authors argue that paying individual people for their data may be superficially appear emancipatory, but it is highly problematic because they argue that individual level monetization is likely to lead to a situation in which the rich pay with money, whereas people on low incomes pay with their data. And the negative effects from this will be especially felt in societies where there is a limited public health care and reliance on the private purchase, the author's claim of health and other services, leading to an increase in social and economic inequality so that privacy becomes a privilege of the wealthy. And these authors also argue that a more equitable solution for data would be to be treated as a collective property that is jointly owned and governed by citizens. And if combined with the prohibition of harmful data practices and corporate taxation mechanisms fit for digital economies, these measures, measures uh, these authors argue, will help to ensure that people and communities benefit from the use of the health data. So there's a lot of things to discuss there. This also concerns if there is a duty to share health data, for example. There's a lot of uh, uh, leading ethicists like uh, Glenn Cohn from Harvard Law School who are discussing this issue. And then sustainability issues can also become uh, an important um, question here because uh, the personal health information stored as NFTs on a blockchain would require more computer power to verify a growing amount of data and number of transactions resulting in greater energy costs and necessi necessitating more capital and physical investment. And these dynamics may incentivize a return to powerful institutions and constitute a critical challenge to the raison d'etre of, of, of decentralized infrastructures. Uh, however, a certain blockchain support innovations are emerging now, and I think the audience here knows that best, uh, that might help to address energy and climate burdens with implications for the democratization of participation through reduced processing costs. So I skip the next point on market forces because I think you're already in contractual challenges and opportunities because I think you already mentioned most of it, Christine. So we can turn to the to the final slide here. So what we see here are um, in this area uh, are many, many promises, but also a few perils, right? And I, I mentioned a few of them. I think also, Christine, you mentioned cybersecurity, for example. And if I look into our other 
research areas such as the regulation of quantum technologies. I can tell you that cybersecurity, there's an arms race going on uh, where quantum uh, algorithms can be used to crack any known cybersecurity um, system that we have right now, but they can also, on the other hand, enable us to create very secure, um, through quantum technology and quantum algorithms, very secure cybersecurity systems. So it is really an arms race going on in this area, which also has to be considered very um, carefully. So this is also an area where we, a very controversial area. We could see that when our science paper was published that, that many people, they were very emotional about it and they didn't read our, our uh, we think, quite um, you know, balanced uh, considerations. So they, they just thought we would like to immediately um, put all the personal data on, 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 on the NFTs. And, and, and that created just a lot of uh, criticism without people having read the paper. Um, and so we have to, you know, the communication of these issues is very important. We have to be proceed very carefully there. And we, as lawyers, we always deal with this tension between over and under regulation. And, and this is a delicate balance, right? Because both carry risks. If it's overregulated, you 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 um, hinder innovation. Um, if it's underregulated, you increase risks. And to find the right balance here is very important. And as lawyers, I think we should not only say. Uh, be the ones who say no, don't go further and stop. We should also be the ones that say, okay, we may proceed, but be very careful, like like teenager parents, right? And you want to make sure that you don't wake up um, after the party and, and the house is destroyed, right? And um, it is also an area, I think, where innovation is really needed. So I think it makes sense to really, really uh, think very carefully here and weighing all the, the benefits and the risks uh, and, and this is not an easy task because both of the uh, te technological development, which is very complex, but also the legal landscape is, is very complex. And Christine, she, she uh, mentioned the Data Governance Act. There are many, many, many other acts coming forth now, all with the potential relevance, such as the um, also the, the um, AI Act that has been proposed now. And, uh, well, we have many, many different acts that are coming Fourth, and now we, we see it's like really a legal jungle where the rules are also interrelating with each other, medical device regulation, for example, as well. And uh, so there is a lot of legal expertise and, and guidance needed here to calibrate and to coordinate these uh, legal rules with the uh, technological developments. And sometimes uh, you, we need to be very careful how to interpret the rules. Right um, and how to decide on the rules. And in, in some situations, we might even have to change some of the rules in light of uh, new developments. And one thing I, I think is, which is very interesting, before we start to, to pause innovation in the area, as we can see in the chat GPT discussion about generative AI, that people want to basically pause the development here. I think another way forward here is really to work with so-called regulatory sandboxes which are, for example, also proposed in the um, EU AI Act uh, and where, where innovation can happen with it con within a controlled environment. Um, so so let's the, let the kids play and let's see that we build bridges uh, from, from product development to innovation that matters, that helps and not fall into the trap of, of being afraid to jump um, because the gap is so deep. Let's build bridges over the depth over the over the gap and i think that is what we have to do in this area uh, but we have to proceed carefully um, and this is also where i think our research will continue to to evolve so thank you very much and i'm looking forward to the discussion
Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Simo. Um, I'll turn it back over to Hans. As well, you have any questions? Uh, in regard, Roman has a question. I can ask a question because if, can you hear me? That is always the first question you have to ask. Uh, we, I guess not. Can you can you hear Roman? No. Sorry, I cannot really hear. Him. I also need to. You need to I stay okay, for questions. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, we don't get an echo now. So, uh, thank you very much for the presentation. Just a little bit too early. You mentioned the EU AI Act and the regulatory setbacks for that. But actually, I have another question in my view, my perspective. You may have heard about the EU regulatory setbacks for blockchain. Yes. And uh, uh, maybe you have some insights or some views or perspective, perspectives of that one as well, as that is closer to home for us here, uh, looking at blockchain and innovation than the AI Act. So what do you think kind of a regulatory sandbox on EU level for blockchain startups and regulators? Because that, the, the regulators are the ones that are in the sandbox, right? They should learn from each other. And what do you think the benefits of this are? And uh, how can we all learn in, in balancing out what is good regulation or smart regulation? We talked about too much or not, not enough regulation. I'm interested in your perspective on that. Yeah, I have to admit, we're just about to really dive deep into the regulatory sandbox topic. It's quite new for us lawyers as well. But last year, we were working with the financial sector, right? So the financial sector is now really applied in many areas. I mostly have thought about We're looking forward to hearing more then, Timo. Yeah, and I'm of course very much interested also to work together with the European Blockchain Center in these areas and to talk more about that. Great. Uh, I, I also have a question. Um, so, uh, Christine, you, you said in the beginning that um, you wrote this paper and came up with the whole idea uh, when, you know, NFT was a hot topic and um, you thought, 
uh, we might have a go and look at uh, PHI as well uh, in, and, and the connection to NFTs. Uh, now, um, you know, the focus has shifted a little bit uh, to um, AI and, um, and the whole discussion around it has, you know, have, have the ideas changed uh, in the, with the emergence uh, of AI? Um, is it still valid or has it become even more valid or what, what, I, what is your take on it? Um, it depends on what you mean by AI, but I, I, I do think that the problems have just been exacerbated by, mm. um, you know, advancements in AI. As I mentioned before, you know, these, this, this kind of suite of algorithmic capacities to re-identify, I mean, those, those just get uh, better and better by the day. Um, and so I think that the, the threats are, are increasing um, through AI. But I also think that AI is offering a lot of solutions. So, you know, uh, one of the things that I'm really interested in is looking at um, machine, sort of federated machine learning, and how to implement smart contracts within the context of federated machine learning. Um, and I find that to be a really interesting use case. Um, you know, I mentioned it briefly here, but the idea is that with with uh, federated learning, you have every all of the data stays kind of local um, to where it is, it stays where it is, and then it's, it's algorithms that really go and, and learn from the data. It's not doesn't even ever have to be seen by human eyes, and I think that that's a remarkable innovation. And I, I think that we need um, we need really. Uh, tools for efficiency to do that. So we need ways of taking vast data sets and being able to parse up which ones we can, we're allowed to learn from based on, you know, preferences from, um, from patients, of course, but then could be other contingencies for access to that we haven't even thought about, right? So the way, so using smart contracts is to, to kind of govern um, uh, learning, uh, machine learning approaches, I think is really promising too. So that's just two that I can think of. Right. Just maybe wanted to add that Christine and I and my, our colleague Marcelo, we're just also working on a paper in, in that area. So we're very interested in that. Yeah. Yeah, stay tuned. Great. Thank you very much. Are there any more questions? Because then uh, I think uh, we'll go on to the next lecture. And uh, thank you very much to uh, both uh, Angola and to Sweden uh, for joining in today. Thank you so much. Stay in touch. Have a good Thank day, you. everybody. Good evening. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody. Now the interaction gets a bit easier. Yeah, <laughs> much easier, yeah. Okay, Katrin, yeah. you don't need to do anything. Oh, yeah. You just have to give a lecture. Great. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank it's you. Easy. Thank you. Um, thanks for the invitation. And also, it's always nice to be second, especially when some themes come up in my lecture have already been touched on very clearly by Christine and Timo. So I'm Dr. Katrine Steenmans, and my lecture will fo focus on and discords between circular economy and the law on blockchain. Just a quick note about the title, it's because there's very few explicitly labeled circular economy laws, which is why, um, even though it makes it a bit of a longer title, I insisted on the and the in the parentheses. So just a brief background about myself. I'm a postdoc 
currently working on the Circus Project, which is funded by the Danish Independent Research Fund and is a project focused on identifying and allocating legal risks within circular supply chains. My background is uh, generally within the remit of international and EU environmental law and specifically waste law. And um, essentially that's a roundabout way of saying that my background isn't in technology or technological law. It's very much rooted in that environmental um, area and I've only recently come into the blockchain angle. My approach, therefore, that's reflected in this lecture and is also the approach that Timo and Christine helpfully took, is to first identify the particular problem I'm looking at and then in having identified the problem, only then start looking at the potential role of blockchain. And so that's also just to say, have a little bit of patience because it might be 10 minutes before I mention blockchain again. So, this is the general structure. I'll set out the problem. Then I'll introduce the concept of the circular economy. I'll set out the status quo of the link between blockchain, the circular economy, the opportunities and challenges. And then I conclude with a brief example just to illustrate some of these challenges and opportunities in practice. So what is the problem? In a nutshell, there's a global waste crisis same time that there's a resource crisis. Lots of evidence exists to demonstrate the unsustainable waste production levels. For example, a report by the World Bank states that more than 2 billion tons of municipal solid waste is produced annually. And this is only expected to almost double by 2050. And this doesn't even include other, um, this doesn't even include all types of waste, that is just household waste. Simultaneously, our annual global primary resource use is outpacing population growth and has exceeded 100 billion tons, with some estimates that by 2050, this figure will also almost double to about 180 billion tons. So these are frightening statistics and many more such statistics exist. And they all essentially point to our unsustainable resource use and waste production. Part of this is to do with our current waste management options. We're running out of low-lying, low-value lands, which are used for landfill. And landfill is still the dominant waste management approach globally. And also even within the EU, um, a few years ago, it still accounted for almost 40% of our waste management. Incineration, which is often touted as the alternative, um, emits lots of air pollutants. And again, it doesn't quite address the issue of the volume of waste we produce because you end up with a lot of ash that also still needs to be managed. And then finally, there's recycling, which is what we're striving to do more of, in part at least. Um, but this isn't at the scale needed. And even with recycling, there's also lots of issues. So for example, um, their social concerns with residents near plastic recycling workshops having been found to suffer from cancer risks. So this is why lots of different concepts have been introduced to address um, this concurrent resource and waste crisis. And the particular concept I focus on is the circular economy. So what is the circular economy? 
The explicit labeling of the circular economy concept is quite recent, um, quite new, um, but its fundamental essence, as you'll see in a moment, is something that's been around since time immemorial. It's something that you'll intuitively feel quite comfortable with. The definition I adopt, because lawyers like definitions, is that um, the circular economy prioritizes the prevention of waste pr production and minimizing resource use and only where that isn't possible should we try and reuse, recycle, or recover materials at all levels for the purpose of sustainable development, including social equity. And this isn't a legal definition. No definition exists within the law yet. Um, it doesn't a few national laws, um, but it's based on Kircher and others' definition that they based on a review of more than 100 definitions in both scholarly and practitioner literature. And the reason this is a very popular definition is because it prioritizes waste prevention. So as soon as we're talking about the recycling, the reuse of waste, we've already got the problem because the waste has already been produced. So the first step really needs to be to minimize our resource use and prevent waste even becoming an issue in the first place. Only where it's unavoidable should we consider or look at reusing, recycling, and recovering our waste. And some waste is inevitable. In all circular economies, some resource inputs remain necessary as a result of quality losses and energy requirements. Then finally, this definition also highlights the importance and the aim of sustainable development including social equity. Um, and an in-depth discussion of the concept is beyond the scope of this talk, but it's really social equity and the social equity dimension within the concept that can help try and um, establish some systemic change. Um, yeah. Uh, the concept has increased in importance. The concept, as I've said before, has been around for many decades and has also been labeled different things, but it really gained promise prominence within the legal sphere in 2008 when China adopted its circular economy promotion law. And within the EU since 2014, the EU has had various iterations of its circular economy action plan. And the reason it's increasing in popularity is because it's meant to help address these concurrent crises we're facing, but also because it's claimed to have lots of environmental, social, and economic benefits. And really, research often shows that it's the economic benefit that's driving it, whereas really the focus should be on the environmental and social benefits. But the expected economic gains in Europe and China from transitioning towards circular economies are claimed to be around 1.8 trillion euros by 2030 and more than 10 trillion US dollars by 2040, respectively. It can also help mitigate resource-related climate impacts as almost 70% of our global greenhouse gas emissions are related to, our, to material management. And then finally, the social benefits are often listed in terms of job creation. Um, there's very few estimates that exist on this, but within Europe, it's estimated it could create a net additional, net additional jobs of around 700,000. But despite all these proclaimed benefits, there are still isolated and limited number of circular economies. 
the circularity gap, that is the amount of resources extracted compared to the amount of material lost due to waste generation and stock depletion is actually increasing. And then less than 10% of our resources and materials in the global economy gets recycled. So there's still a long way to go. There's also questions about some of the businesses that label their um, activities as circular. For example, Amazon and Coca-Cola both have dedicated sections on their websites listing their circular aims. Yet their business models are based on continuing consumption and continuing that sort of resource use. So there's questions about how circular that is. It isn't inaccurate from, for them to state that because the definition is quite wide and flexible. Recycling is part of the definition. So I'm not critiquing the fact they've used it. It's more of a critique of the concept as a whole. But some of these limitations are also part of the reason that there's an increased recognition for law. Questions that need to be answered and are being explored include what legal tools can be used to incentivize more, more and more rapid transitions towards circular economies? And how can the law be used to ensure prevention of waste is prioritized? And this is really where my discussion of blockchain comes in. Um, there's lots I could say more about circular economy and the law, but this will be more integrated through my um, discuss discussion of blockchain in it. The literature on blockchain and the circular economy is still at quite a nascent stage. And it has also been observed that in practice, the, that blockchain's application, the circular economy is still neglected. Uh, Buckle and others did do a review of some of the links that have been made between the circular economy and blockchain. And these benefits are listed on the slide and they're listed in frequency order. I won't go through each one. Um, you can read the paper if you're interested in the detail, but I'll pick out on a, a couple. So for example, circular economies require innovation. They need systemic change because we need to rethink the way we approach this. At the moment, one of the issues is, like with the Coca-Cola example, that the circular that circular economies are still very much being adopted in a way that facilitates the status quo, just a different term is being applied to it. And it's very much like climate action in that way. Lots of little actions are being taken, but none of that underlining systemic change that's needed. And that's where blockchain has, is argued sometimes to come in because it's been described as a disruptor that could incentivize new business models. Also, in order to implement changes, you need to understand the issue first. So for example, in order to prevent waste, we need to know what waste is being produced, who is producing that waste, what types of waste are being produced, the amounts of it, and the function of blockchain is essentially a virtual distributed ledger on which data can be stored, is that this source of waste data can then be used, stored to help review and to inform subsequent directions. So now considering the status quo of the link between circular economy and blockchain. Uh, so as I've briefly mentioned before, there are an increasing number of explicitly labeled circular economy laws. And then there are also just the laws more widely that consider um, recycling and reuse. These could also be considered within the remit of circular economy in the law. 
Because some of these are relatively new, it means they've been adopted within social and political contexts in which the role of innovative technologies are being promoted, yet there's only very limited and super, superficial acknowledgement of technology in them. So on the slide is the example of the EU Circular Economy Action Plan from 2020. And this isn't a binding law, it's a policy document. And it's the only explicitly labeled um, circular economy law or policy that mentions blockchain specifically. So it states that innovative, innovative models um, based on a closer relationship with customers, mass customization, the sharing and collaborative economy, and powered by digital technologies such as blockchain, will not only accelerate circularity, but also the dematerialization of our economy and make Europe less dependent on primary materials. So this plan lends support to a focus on black blockchain, but it lacks specificity. Later on in the plan, there's one more link made between technology and circular economy generally, and this is to say that it's for tracking, tracing, and mapping of resources. Beyond the EU circular economy action plan, circular economy laws generally also um, identify role for technology, but lack detail. So for example, China's circular economy promotion law includes encouraging technological development plans, but that's really what there is to it. Japan's basic act for establishing a sound material cycle society states that it should promote the development of technology. And South Korea's framework act on resources circulation states that the government may subsidize a business entity for establishing technology development funds. So these are just some examples, but it shows the general trend in at least environmental laws that um, there is this recognition of a role for technology, but that's really all there is to it. So what about in practice? In previous research with two collaborators, I investigated some blockchain-based initiatives within the waste management sector. Um, essentially, we reviewed 21 blockchain-based applications to waste management, and this is just a snapshot of the complete table that's available. And what we did is we categorized the contribution blockchain initiatives made into four non-discrete types based on their usage. Um, so the first one is cryptocurrency payments, and this uses, as you can guess, the commonly recognized blockchain function of facilitating facilitating payments. For example, where waste companies make and accept payments with cryptocurrency for waste transactions. The second category, cryptocurrency-based reuse and recycling rewards, is essentially a subset of this first category. Um, and it's where blockchain facilitates rewards-based systems in which people receive blockchain-secured items as a reward for bringing in material waste to facilitate recycling. The third is monitoring and tracking of waste. And this links back to my previous comment about blockchain being a data store about waste. And so initiatives use blockchain to record data on, for example, the provenance of waste and the types of waste. And then this is then used to optimize waste management, generally for economic reasons in order to um, increase profits. 
Then finally, smart contract implementations, which you're all familiar with, and Christine also explained very well. And essentially here, they're used, as you'd expect, to automate transactions to do with waste. None of the initiatives reviewed were developed with an explicit aim to support laws or, po or policies, and this is also apparent from the four categories on the slide. Um, all of them, barred the one that's a subset based on recycling, could be implemented in a way that's supportive of the circular economy, but equally not supportive. These payments don't need to be for anything that's you know, so-called environmentally friendly. The tracking of waste as well isn't necessarily to help reduce the amount of waste and so on, but um, they do have potential to be used in that way. Also just, it was mentioned in the previous lecture too about the high energy often gets mentioned because especially when talking about circular economies and talking about minimizing resource waste. Um, because these alternatives are being developed, this isn't always considered as big an issue as some people think it is at first. And it also then we go into the realm of considering life cycle assessments of weighing up a, the trade of, of we can have this high energy use potentially, but then it might provide us data that might help cut resources in another way. So that would need an in-depth assessment of knowing um, what the better outcome is. So taking then a step back and with these initiatives, we also conducted some interviews to then try and dig deeper into what is the potential role of law. And generally, it's no surprise that the role of law in relation to blockchain-based initiatives for waste management is weak. And it's been perceived more to be a barrier as a result of general lack of laws, legal uncertainty, the ineffectiveness of current waste laws, and GDPR, which, again, the previous lecture set out well. And some of these issues, hopefully, you're starting to see some parallels, even though we're talking about different contexts. Um, a lot of the themes within public health data and waste management and waste management data are quite similar. But importantly, none of the people we interviewed and none of the entities co considered these barriers unassailable. And the consensus at least was that there should be more of a role to play. So it's finding in that balance of over-regulation and under-regulation, there's actually consensus that at the moment it's being under-regulated. There's also still many opportunities. Blockchain can help operationalize dimensions that are identified as contributing to good governance within legal systems, such as participation, transparency, responsiveness, effectiveness and efficiency, and accountability. And many of these characteristics of good governance systems arise as a result of blockchain being a permanent data ledger with smart contracts, with its inherent characteristics of immutability, decentralization, transparency, and being consensus-driven, as well as just generally, as you are all aware, and their resulting benefits of enhanced provenance, auditing, corroboration, trustworthiness, and incentivization. But it's also good to be reminded that even though blockchain, um, having blockchain doesn't ensure good governance characteristics, it can just be conducive of them. So it would need to be complemented by other measures. Secondly, multiple stakeholder interaction 
may be facilitated by characteristic features of blockchain. And then this is where perhaps it can help disrupt current systems by having more participation by different stakeholders. Um, it's also important to note that I've not spoken much about design choices um, that need to be made because these may be linked to particular opportunities and challenges that exist, whether things are public or private. Um, also, for example, if tracking life cycle of products and waste, then we need all stakeholders involved. And as Christine um, Timo again pointed out, there's lots of issues and challenges linked with that. So an example to demonstrate some of these opportunities and challenges is a regulatory measure called extended producer responsibility. Extended producer responsibility is a measure whereby responsibility for the management of the product remains with the product producer throughout its life cycle. And this responsibility may take different forms. It can be physical, informative, organizational, um, economic, or in the form of liability. So for example, where a producer has economic responsibility, that means or can mean, for example, that when a product becomes waste, that producer should be paying for its waste management. And in that way, it's hoped to incentivize producers to ensure that their products are developed with longevity and also in a way that can be managed sustainably. And hopefully, um, the hope is that that also is all more cost effective. This is a commonly accepted measure. It's implemented in the EU in relation to certain products, and there's more than 400 examples of it being implemented globally in some form. Within the EU Waste Framework Directive, which is the key piece of EU waste law, it states that where extended producer responsibility is applied to products, that it may include, for example, the acceptance of returned products of waste that remain after those products have been used um, by any natural or legal person who professionally develops, manufactures, processes, treats, sells, or imports products. And this requires the final waste holder to have knowledge of that natural legal person or entity. And this is where blockchain may contribute its ability to provide provenance information. But again, there are obstacles to such application. For example, we need to determine who actually is the responsibility. Is it any of the listed options or does it depend on the scenario? How would this information be made available to the waste user? And if it's, for example, through something physical like a barcode or QR code on the product, then what happens if there's a breakdown of materials? And there's lots of challenges still with this application even where the benefits and links are quite clear. And so the highlights, hopefully, of the past 20 minutes or so are that as much as the focus has been on blockchain, the latter is that it should remain a problem-based approach. Blockchain may be part of the solution, but it shouldn't be driving the solution. And actually, when um, looking at the in initiatives, uh, we reviewed about 21 initiatives and only two of them are still being continued with half of them discontinued and a lot of the others not being very clear, which leads me to think they're likely 
discontinued. And I think a lot of the reason for that was that the initiatives, instead of thinking, what is the issue here is because there was a lot of funding for blockchain available at the time, thought, ooh, what can I apply it to without thinking was at the heart of the problem. Um, but is blockchain could be part of the solution. And then what is particularly useful, and again, Christine and Timo highlighted this, is that in having this discussion of how it could be part of the solution is that it instigates conversations. In order to apply it in some of these initiatives, it makes us take a step back and ask certain questions, either for the first time in uncovering new issues that haven't been resolved in the laws in the first place, or questions that have been parked to be revisited later. So for example, with extended producer responsibility, it's who should have the responsibility, what particular property rights should be assigned to them, and so on. So for this reason, it's still important that opportunities, synergies, and challenges between blockchain and circular economy and law continue to be explored. And that concludes my talk. Thank you. <laughs> To welcome our next uh, lecturer, Christian Tenkov. All right, the floor, is, the floor is yours. Thank you. Yeah. So I hope touch and comic relief only, but I'm happy with that role as well. So um, from here, it's all uh, downhill. I can assure you things will get easier. <laughs> um, okay. And having said that, so starting, um, what I want to, uh, the message I want to send out today is when you're treating with, with the blockchain and when you discuss NFTs, in particular on crypto Twitter, as it's called, uh, they often say code is law, right? So there's this whole idea that whatever is written on the blockchain, that is uh, the truth, and the law doesn't really matter so much anymore. Uh, me being an IP lawyer, I'm of course biased, but I'm here to tell you that actually the law is the law, and within law, of course, IP is king. Um, the topics that I will cover is what is IP in general? That will be a quick review. Then we'll talk a little bit about the difference between trademarks and copyright. We will chat about what you can do with IP. And then I've brought two cases uh, to look at more specifically, dealing with Web3, NFTs, and IP law. Uh, a bit of advertisements. So that's the firm I work for, Taylor Wessing. Um, on the right, that's me and uh, an avatar I use uh, in, in, you know, in the virtual space. I'm a trademark lawyer predominantly, so whenever I speak about copyright here, that's stuff uh, I don't do on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, I'm very much focused on trademark litigation, but of course, uh, I, I have the general idea uh, most of the time right, I hope. Um, 
So looking at intellectual property law, I wanted to start with the basics because sometimes when we discuss NFTs and blockchain law, it's already quite complex and then people don't really understand the basics. That's also when you read about, you know, cases in the US, litigation cases, even the media, the general media, it doesn't always get the, the differences between copyrights, patents and trademarks, right? And, and I think it's important when you have these discussions. So the general principle when we look, about, uh, look at IP is that everybody is free to copy everything, right? You can, like if, if there's no particular IP right that stops you and you see a product that you desire that you think is, is uh, worth producing, you could do that. Nobody can stop you from doing that. If there's no IP protection, it's okay to copy. There's some exceptions, of course, unfair competition. If you're actually trying to mislead the public, then that's forbidden too. But in general, if there's no IP rights, you can copy the, the ideas and the products of others. And then there are specific IP rights that stop you from doing that in certain cases. And, and those are, for example, copyright, trademarks, and patents. Today, we'll focus on copyrights and trademarks. So what is intellectual property? What are intellectual property rights? They are absolute rights in intangible assets and um, examples, as I mentioned already, are patents, which are more in the area of technical solutions. Then there's copyright that uh, protects creative works or uh, artistic works. And then there's trademarks uh, for logos and names and, and other, other things. And two general ideas that I think are important and that I wanted to bring across as well is Trademark rights and IP rights, they give you a legal monopoly. Many people think that if you go out and do business, you need a trademark in order to use a specific name, but that's not actually true, right? You, if you find a name that you think is uh, you know, good for you to use, you don't actually need to register a trademark to use that name. You can use a specific name for, um, for a product without registering, without obtaining a trademark. There are some downsides of doing that, but in general, you don't need to get an IP right to do things. Um, and the second thing that's important, sometimes you know, our clients, they, they, get a, they obtain a trademark right or they, they have some other right, and they think that means that they are free to do whatever they want, and that tells them that they cannot infringe other rights. But that's also not true, right? Even if you have an IP right, that only means that, okay, you have that trademark, but nonetheless, that trademark could infringe third-party rights. So the, the office, when they register your trademark, they are not telling you you are not infringing anyone else. They only tell you you have this trademark and you can stop others from using that trademark. But they don't tell you, and it's not true that you can't infringe others. Okay, so uh, as I said, we'll speak about trademarks and copyright. Um, here are some examples of what trademarks can actually be, as I already said. It, they can be names, they can be logos. Actually, there's also trademarks in colors and in shapes of products and many different things. In general, trademarks are source indicators. So trademarks are something that tell you what is the commercial origin of a product. That's the purpose of a trademark. Um, and that serves in society to, to reduce the search costs. So if you go into a shop, you don't have to explain um, to the person working in the shop that you want the jeans that was produced in the United States and uh, that has this and co that color, you can refer to the name of the company or the trademark and the other person will know directly which product you are referring to. So that's the purpose of trademarks, to identify the source or the product. Copyrights uh, have a 
different purpose. They protect intellectual creations, and those are examples of, of uh, assets in which copyrights can exist. Uh, I won't go through all of them. For us in particular, it's the creative works, the, the, what we consider art, that is typically or can be protected by copyright. And it can be in music, it can be in, uh, in other pieces of art as well. Um, and to get it absolutely into everyone's head, so again, the differences between trademarks and copyright, um, we already discussed what they protect. Trademarks, the distinctive signs that tell you something about the origin of a product, and the copyright protects the creative, uh, the intellectual creation. We already discussed why they exist. Um, there's also a different, uh, difference when it comes to how they come into existence. So trademark, either through use or more typically through registration. So actually you go to a trademark office or you send something to a trademark office and apply for registration and then the office grants you the trademark right. That's very different in copyright. The mere act of creating something and you know, writing it down, that can already give rise to copyright. So you don't need to go, at least in the EU, you don't need to go anywhere for a registration of a copyright. You have it by creating uh, the piece of work. And when, uh, that's not spelled incorrectly, that's uh, when you are, if you are in the NFT space, uh, that's a word you read all the time, when this, when that, uh, that's uh, the way uh, they spell this in the internet uh, when talking about NFTs. But anyway, uh, also the length of the duration of protection for, um, for trademarks and copyrights is different. You can extend uh, a, um, a trademark as often as you want, you can renew it, and theoretically the protection will go on forever as long as you, as you renew it. Copyrights are different, uh, you get protection for the life of the author and then uh, 70 additional years. So, and by the way, we are going to uh, cover blockchain in a moment, that was just the preparation, and, and that's one more step of preparation. So, when you purchase a physical product, we will talk about digital products and digital assets in a moment, but now when you buy a physical product, such as a, such as a book, that does not mean, like the ownership of a physical item does not mean necessarily that I have all other rights. I might be the owner of that cup or I might be the owner of this book, but that does not give me automatically the copyright in that book and it doesn't give me the trademarks, the trademark rights associated with that book. So even though I'm the owner of a book does not mean that I can copy it as much as I want or that I can make a movie out of it. I don't have these rights even though I'm the owner of the physical copy of a book. And of course there's one product but there can be many different rights associated with that one product. So there will be copyright, for example, in the actual story that is being told, and there can be trademarks um, such as here, Wiley, that's the, the trademark of the publisher of the book. And I set that to apply this to NFTs. So I will not go into the details of what NFTs are. I, I, I assume that the audience will be aware and familiar with that, but when we talk about IP and NFTs, it's important to separate the NFT as the token that exists on the blockchain and the image or the digital asset or whatever it is that the NFT is connected with, that it is uh, linked to. And when we talk about IP, 
we don't think so much about the, the token, but we think more about the digital assets. So the, the JPEG, as they say, the image often that the, that the NFT, that the token is associated with. And just because I'm the owner or the holder of a specific NFT does not necessarily give me all the IP rights in the image that is associated with, associated with the token. And there can be different IP rights uh, that are connected with the images. For example, there will be, there can be copyright in, in the image, such as this one, but there can also be trademark rights associated with that image. As you can see here, there are actually numerous places where trademarks are uh, included in that image. So that's the parallel with the, uh, with the physical space. Ownership of a specific NFT, of a digital asset, does not mean that I have all the IP rights and there can be different IP rights associated with one NFT. Okay, now we will come to what we can do if we own IP, right? So there's two areas mainly that we can think of. Um, as I said, IP rights give you the rights to stop other people from doing things. So that means if you have the IP right, you have the exclusive, exclusive rights and you can stop others from using those rights. Or for example, if you, if you have a trademark, you can stop others from using that specific name for their products. And that's what I do most of my day. I stop people from using other people's trademarks. Um, that is not what NFTs are so much about, of course. It's more about the exploitation. So that's, the, that's the, at the bottom of this slide. It's more about if you have an IP right and that's an IP that is valuable that people desire, then you can allow others to use that uh, IP right or that asset, that, that piece of art or whatever. And, and then you get payment for that, you get money. So that's where the money lies in IP. And now the images and the N NFTs that we've been waiting for. Um, when looking at NFTs, the, the most important thing, of course, is uh, licensing. That's what is, uh, you know, covered a lot in, in the NFT space and in the, the Web3 world. People that buy NFTs, they always want to know what are the rights, what rights do I get when I purchase this NFT? And that is a good question because as many of you will know, some of these NFTs, some of these images, they sell for hundreds of thousands of US dollars, if not millions per image, right, per NFT. And um, I think it's not always clear to, to the buyers what they are actually buying. So again, owning the NFT is not the same thing as owning the, all the IP rights in the um, associated asset, so that's very important. And while the NFT can be traded and is traded through the blockchain and with smart contracts, and that is all done automatically once the uh, ETH is being transferred, that's not true for the terms and conditions. They don't exist on the blockchain and they are not, uh, um, that is not operated through the blockchain, but actually, that are typical normal terms and conditions that you can find typically on the website of the, um, of the collection. So of the company or of the individuals that are offering a collection of these NFTs. Um, at least they should have terms and conditions. And if you go on their website, then you can see um, the, the terms and conditions when you mint an NFT and they will explain 
sometimes specifically, sometimes very broadly, what rights they grant you, what, I, what IP rights they give you when you buy one of these NFTs. There are, I would say, there's many different, of course, license models when it comes to NFTs, but I have picked these three examples um, that I would describe as the leading ones in the space. Probably those are the typical um, license types that you get when you buy one of the, one of the NFTs uh, in the space. The most restrictive one, um, unless you don't get any license, that could also be possible, but there would be probably some, some implied license. But if there's an expressive uh, license, the most restrictive one would be a personal uh, a license for personal use. That's true for some of the NFTs in the CloneX um, collection, the ones that have a specific trait that is considered uh, more artistic than others. And for those NFTs that you see on your left, uh, you only get the license for personal use. That means you can probably use one of those images as your profile picture on Twitter or on other social media platforms, but you cannot use that image to print it on mugs and then sell those or on T-shirts. You don't. You could try, uh, and uh, they might not do anything against it. But at least that those are not the rights that they have granted you when buying one of these NFTs. Then there is a more broad license, and I'm, I, I would say this is currently probably the standard, uh, the, the gold standard that is being applied, where you get a broader license that also includes commercial use. So the Board Ape Yard Club, which is uh, one of the more popular NFT collections, um, those collections, as you know, typically have 10,000 um, profile pictures in one collection, and buyers and holders of uh, one of those NFTs from the Board Yard Club, they get uh, a license that includes commercial use. So they can actually um, use those images as their trademarks or just as art to be printed on any products or to be used in connection with a fast food chain or some other startup. And, and people are doing that at the moment. So they are using the IP the art, the image they have um, in, in, in such uh, a board ape and using that for their companies or for, their, um, for other commercial ideas they have. So that's, that's the commercial license that is typical at the moment. And then there is a, a very special case <laughs> that is even more difficult to explain and often gets lost. Uh, some people that hear this for the first time um, on the right, you see the collection that's called Moonbirds, and that's also a collection of 10,000 uh, profile pictures. And there was a change in the license that they have given out. Uh, at the beginning, it was also a commercial use license, and then after um, some time, which under law might be a little bit problematic, but they changed their license model and they put all of the art into the public domain. So they gave up their copyright and essentially said that uh, anybody can use any of the art images, any of these images. So they are now in the public domain, meaning there is no longer any copyright protection associated with these images. That has upset some of the holders. Uh, so 
the current floor price, as it's called. So the current price of one of these images is, I think, uh, $5,000. And that might surprise some of you that why would uh, I buy one of these for $5,000 uh, if I can you know, just download it and can do with, with it whatever I want because nobody can stop me because it's in the public domain. It has been given into the public domain. The idea behind this is that all of these copies, like if I download this uh, and use it for whatever I want to use it for, um, then I'm just using a copy. But there's only one NFT. There, there will be only the one original NFT that is part of this collection and that can be tracked through the blockchain. And the idea is that all these copies and all these different types of uses, all the, you know, um, uh, all this presence in the market will all flow back to the one holder of the original NFT. And the value, that is the idea, of that collection, of that NFT will grow as the knowledge and, and uh, the stardom of this art will become pop culture. That's the idea. Which of these uh, scenarios is you know, better or worse? I, I don't know. Um, it's not known. It's all an experiment in a way. Uh, some of them are more successful at the moment, but that doesn't mean that uh, this will stay the same way. I would say the, um, the founders of the Moonbirds collection, they believe that this is more the Web3 um, native way of doing things. So we don't need IP protection. We have the blockchain there. You can track who is the owner and who has the original NFT and all the rest is you know, just a copy. And it's of course true in the sense that if I copy this image, one of these images, and I try to sell that to someone, I will get nothing. Now, that's probably the amount of money somebody will pay me for a copy of one of these. But the owner of the original NFT for that image, he can sell that this very moment for 5,000 US dollars. So there's something to be heard for that as well. Okay, now we come to the two cases that I wanted to cover. And you cannot do um, IP and Web3 without some memes. So here's another one for you. Um, when I <laughs> entered this space, it was all about copyright, right? The Web3 space, it was all about copyright. And uh, the, you know, my colleagues on the floor, they thought, yes, NFTs, the, the copyright lawyers, they were, yeah, that's the future for us. And then it turned, like, and trademarks, like, I, like nobody thought this, this has nothing to do with trademarks, but, but that has changed. So that's, I say that as a trademark lawyer, of course, don't <laughs> believe everything I say, but it has changed. Um, so when we look at trademark law and um, NFTs, the, the, the cases that I will be speaking about, they, they um, relate to infringement, of course, and there are some requirements, what the court will examine when looking whether a trademark is being infringed. Uh, I won't go through all of them, but generally speaking, what the courts look at is whether there is a likelihood of confusion. So if the trademarks are similar, that's one aspect. Are the trademarks similar? Are the products that the trademarks are being registered for or used for, are they similar? And will the consumer believe that there is a link between the companies or will they confuse um, the trademarks? That's the general uh, assessment very briefly. And that takes me to the first case uh, I want to discuss with you. So um, you see on the left, side there's two uh, ape skulls the right 
uh, Ape Skull is the trademark of the Board Ape Yard Club, right? So, as I said, the Board Ape Yard Club is a collection of NFTs that uh, has been given out by Yuga Labs, and this skull image in black and white is one of their trademarks. And that's the, the skull on the left that you see, that is um, a piece of art that a artist created. So he cut out banknotes, as I understand it, as, and he uh, put them together in the shape of this skull. That's an actual physical piece of art. Uh, and um, he offered that online, I think. Um, and I, I found this on Twitter, so I don't have all the specifics. Uh, but it was a Twitter thread, and, and, and that's what I gathered. But uh, the artist made some comments, so it, it appears to be genuine. And so he, he created that work, and then he received a cease and desist letter from Yuga Labs, so from the owners of the trademark associated with the Board Ape Yacht Club. And for trademark infringement, and they asked him to stop using or selling or offering that piece of, of art. And the interesting thing is that this artist was a holder of an NFT, of a Bored Ape Yard Club NFT. So that guy spent a lot of money for uh, one of these NFTs, from one of these JPEGs, if you want to put it that way. Um, I'm, he, I don't know which one he owned. Um, so the, the one, the, the NFT on the right that you see, the, the Ape, the Bored Ape, uh, that's just an example. So I don't know if he was the owner of that one. But he was, from his comments, he was the holder of an NFT that actually included this logo on, on the t-shirt of the, of the ape, right? So that's where it becomes interesting. So he was very surprised and he, 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 uh, he was furious what, what we can see, what we could see on, on Twitter because he thought, first of all, he, hold, he is a, you know, he's within the community, he spent money for this NFT and they give you a broad license, so he thought, and the image of this logo is on the t-shirt, so there can be no infringement. That was his, uh, his perception because he got a license. And that is where, that, that, that case raises many, many, many questions. But this is in particular an issue where you have to separate the copyright and the trademark rights. So they, they, they grant uh, a license for this image to be used, but from their reading, and, and you can see that in their Discord where one of their founders is explaining that, that they perceive this license to cover, okay, you can use that image as it is, but uh, you cannot you know, pick certain elements out of this and then create whatever you want to do with, uh, with them. So you get, a, you get a license to use that image, but not pick things out of it, and in particular, you don't get the rights in the trademark, for example, BAYC, that's a trademark they also own, and you don't get the trademark rights in the skull logo. So that means you cannot uh, take that, that logo, put it on you know, your business, your products, and sell them under this trademark using that as a trademark. Right? That you don't get the rights for that. That is a trademark that will remain with uh, the company that is offering those NFTs, and, and, and that's uh, their position. Uh, then there's additional questions raised here, uh, whether this piece of art is actually use of a trademark. Uh, I'll, I will not answer those questions, um, and I shouldn't uh, with an online stream. 
but there's many arguments to be had with that, and also whether there's actual confusion or taking unfair advantage. Like, will somebody, will a consumer believe that this piece of art is uh, now being offered by the owner of the original trademark? Maybe, maybe no, um, I will not comment. But it's a very interesting case. And, and clearly, from, from my reading of, of the comments from that um, artist, I actually feel with him and for him, uh, he, you know, he was very surprised and as, an, as an NFT holder that, that he received that letter and, and I, have some, you know, I have sentiment for that. Uh, but I can also see where um, the trademark owner is coming from. They have to protect their trademarks in that scale. That's the trademark they are using for their company and that's separate from the images of those board apes. And uh, the second case that, that I wanted to cover and discuss with you is called the Meta Birkins case. That's maybe a case you have read about already. It was uh, you know, broadly covered in media. Here, an artist sold a collection of NFTs in the, the images showed handbags, digital handbags, if you want images of, digital images of handbags in the shape of the Birkin handbags. And those handbags are famous in the, uh, in the world of handbags, I am told. And uh, they sell um, for uh, respectable prices, so they're, they're a luxury um, product, the Birkin handbags. And also the name Birkin is, is well known. It's a well-known trademark and connected with handbags. So this artist created images of handbags that had the same shape, uh, but they had some differences. They were covered in fur and some other aspects, and he made a collection out of this, and it, the collection was called Meta Birkins. So the Birkin name plus Meta, Meta Birkins. Um, the NFT sold, there was a trade volume, I think, of more than one million US dollars, so there was money made. And MS, which is the uh, producer of the original Birkin handbags and the owner of the trademark rights in Birkin, sued the artist behind the Meta Birkins collection for trademark infringement. Again, right? Not copyright, it's trademarks in the world of NFTs. And um, they alleged that this was trademark infringement, likelihood of confusion, as well as taking unfair. Uh, advantage of the reputation of the name Birkin. And this case was already decided. It, is, it has been decided this year and by a, uh, by a jury. And the jury agreed with MS and they um, found that the artist was liable for trademark infringement. That was an in interesting case because many people believed, you know, code is law and NFTs, they cannot be touched by uh, IP laws. But actually, uh, the jury did not agree with that and they said IP is king and this is an um, IP, IP infringement. The artist relied on fair use, on a fair use defense. Uh, he tried to argue that this is not trademark use, you know, he's not using Meta Birkins or the shape um, of, this, of this handbag as a trademark, but it's all just an artistic project. But the, um, the jury was not convinced by that and that will be and is currently being seen as one of the leading cases on the defining the scope of trademark protection, IP protection in the world uh, of NFTs and Web3. And that's just uh, uh, closing with, with this case, which is a very old 
uh, aspect, of course, the, the known arts in the Campbell's soups by Andy Warhol. Uh, interestingly, in that case, the company, I don't think that's a hoax. I actually think that's true. The, the company, you have to be careful always online with the information you get, but the uh, company, the trademark owners uh, that held the rights in Campbell, um, they did not go after Andy Warhol, we know that, but they actually sent an, a letter to him thanking him for this art and, you know, a very appreciative letter. So that's an alternative road. You don't, even if you have the uh, rights in something, uh, you don't always have to enforce them and there can be benefits in doing that or taking the alternative routes, depending, of course, on many aspects, but it's interesting how differently uh, this was handled and what the outcome was. So summing up my uh, presentation, I hope we have covered um, IP is the exception to the rule that you are free to copy uh, the products of others. Ownership of a physical product or of a digital product does not mean that you own all the IP in that product. Uh, IP enables you to stop others from doing things or it gives you the right to allow others from using your IP. Trademarks are not the same thing as copyright. Uh, the case, the first case we discussed is you need to make sure that you know what you own if you get an NFT. So be clear on what your, the license is that you have been given. And the second one is uh, always be mindful of third party rights. That's again some advertising for my firm and that is the end of the presentation. Thank you very much. much. As we go directly for a little bit of a discussion, Katrine, yes. if you want to join, uh, please. First of all, uh, thank you very much for these uh, excellent uh, lectures. It was very interesting. Um, me, as an IP lawyer, I also learned something, which is always good, uh, you know, that uh, shows the quality of, uh, of a lecture. <laughs> um, I, I want to start out uh, with uh, just summarizing a little bit, because that could maybe lead on to a discussion. So, um, Katrine, as I understood it, you, you looked at uh, blockchain, more as a tool to maybe solve, um, you know, regulation from state to subject, uh, basically. And you looked at it uh, more than like in the perspective of, you know, what can subjects do against each other, basically, uh, when they have been in the blockchain space. And I, I, I want to turn it a little bit around, if possible. So um, to uh, ask uh, you first, Katrine, um, do you see any use, like, not legally, but first, you know, just as a, a tool, maybe, uh, where uh, circular economies are started um, with the help of the blockchain between individuals? You know, and they, let's say, a company or a person start using it somehow, and this leads to maybe a movement or a better understanding or an easier way to do circular economy. Yeah, uh, great question and great, you know, ten-word <laughs> summary of my presentation. Um, yes, a short I do, um, because one of the key benefits is that 
um, I highlighted a few times is this data provision that it can provide. So in order to establish a circular economy, you need to know what's available, who needs what, who's producing what. Um, and so in some way, I'm not quite sure, have, um, making sure that centralized data is available somehow that can then help people if an entity knows, oh yes, that's available and I need that, it can help foster it in that way. Yeah, okay, great. And uh, Chris, um, like, do you see any way, you know, IP law, especially trademark law, needs a central entity, uh, for example, the German uh, Trademark and Patent Office, uh, where you need to register your trademark and uh, only then most likely you will be able to, you know, use your civil rights. Um, do you see any, any way where, you know, blockchain or NFTs even could be, uh, you know, of, of help uh, with that quite complex structure? I think uh, actually the, the EU IPO is, is trying to use blockchain um, in some ways for their databases, so, um, but I haven't followed up on that. But I've seen it online that they, that they are investigating how they can use um, blockchain to um, organize their data structure and make it uh, quicker maybe or uh, more transparent, but, but I haven't... Um, looked at the details, but I, I think it, it could be uh, possible, right? There are, of course, certain um, levels and, and um, areas of the information that should not be uh, transparent, right? That's, I think, um, always the issue with, with blockchain and that sometimes freaks people out that actually it, it's on the blockchain and it's very transparent. Everybody can see it and it stays there, right? So there, at least, you know, like if you look at Ethereum or something, there's also other areas being developed. So that's an area where I see when rights are involved, you know, and information about the applicants, about the holders, there's a level of information that should not be public and that there would be limitations. But I'm sure uh, there could be areas of use, yeah. Okay, great. Um, another question for you, Chris. Um, oh, oh, yeah. Leading back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no time for that. Yeah. Um, let's say uh, in a development where um, you know, the, the NFT craze, uh, as we had it the last years, mm -hmm. would go on and, you know, basically, um, no, everything would be sold or used with the help of NFT, all, all art, copyright, mm -hmm. uh, trademarks and so forth, uh, would be somehow uh, involved. Like, what, like, how should the law change in order to make that happen? Um, are there any, like you don't have to you know, do a whole summary, but what are the main pain points right now which you see could be actually, you know, by the law made easier with the help of the lawmaker? Yeah. So I believe in the area of IP law, uh, we don't need that much um, intervention by the regulator when it comes to trademarks. We can pretty much apply the rules we already have. There are some areas that are, you know, tricky, but we will, I guess, the courts and lawyers will f find ways to, to apply this. Um, there is um, discussion, of course, when it comes to copyrights. Uh, are those images, are some of those images uh, eligible for copyright protection? They, some of them are uh, being produced with the help of AI tools, so that's a big challenge, of course, but probably also something for courts and lawyers to figure out. 
but then there's the whole area of regulatory uh, overview and uh, how are you allowed to offer NFTs and so the regulatory aspects uh, in the US the big discussion are NFTs and cryptocurrencies are their security so that's a huge area that's currently in development and, and the EU is of course also um, doing things in that area and that's something that's being um, worked on and that's evolving and where we still need additional work I think. Right. Um, I want to open up the, the discussion a little bit with the audience also. I, I can already see Roman has a question, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, again, yeah. I, thank you very much, first yeah. of all, for the two presentations. Well, super interesting, and, and, and I enjoyed, enjoyed it a lot. Um, I, the circular economy topic obviously is an important one because you also mentioned in your presentation that when you're talking about blockchain, immediately people get a bit of a reflex, you know, energy consumption, and aren't you uh, trying to solve a, a global problem, global warming, kind of waste management, and so on, with creating another problem, namely kind of using a, an energy intensive solution? Uh, we all know that uh, those solutions most likely are not running on proof of work, but uh, the, the energy intense uh, blockchain uh, consensus mechanism. Kind of when you looked into the comparative analysis you, you made, kind of how many of those circular economy projects that are still in existence or not in existence, and I agree with you that a lot of them may not continue their services, I believe, uh, are actually kind of specifically focusing on and, and mentioning in their white papers or however they presented themselves what blockchain they are favoring and how the nature and the affordances, the capabilities of the technology is specifically f helping them to achieve their goals. You know, kind of, because obviously they all face this criticism, burning energy, right? Yeah. Um, the main one that is still... Um functioning is called the plastic bank where people um, this is one of the examples of cryptocurrency being used as rewarding people for bringing in their plastics um, in particularly global south countries and there they when I spoke to them they didn't say what they were using but they made it clear that they had looked into it they'd done all the energy assessments to ensure that mm. they could if they were questioned on it um, ex explain and show their calculations of why theirs was still in the bigger picture more resource efficient than not using blockchain but then perhaps not having the same incentives. Um, most I found in interviewing or uh, didn't publicize it really um, or consider it in okay. such detail because they were so driven in my from my observations, by just wanting to use blockchain in yes. order to attract attention rather than thinking about the resource problem. Yeah. We, we saw, in, I think in your presentation, uh, several illustrations of, you, know, you said kind of cryptos are used for incentivizing or there is a certain way of using smart contracts and so on. Kind of what, what increasingly is gaining popularity is regenerative finance. You know, like how you, the financial flows along... Um, uh, carbon reduction, carbon removal uh, initiatives and all kinds of other things where uh, there is an incentive mechanism, there is some sort of token or coin involved to um, uh, support, incentivize a certain behavior to do good, you know, blockchain for good. Uh, regenerative finance and these things, did that play a role when you did your analysis for your, for your work? 
Uh, no, not really. It's not something okay. I looked into. But what I will say with a lot of the cryptocurrency rewards, one of the issues I do have is when we transition to a circular economy in the ideal world, we wouldn't mm. be looking at the, well, it needs to move away from this linear economy. Yeah. And the way these rewards work and being based so much on financial incentives means it still sort of locks us into that current linear economy where we're still trying to grow and grow. Yeah. Um, whereas mm. we should be more looking at donut economics or prosperity without yeah. growth and so on. So. The, the structural systematic change yeah. that you were talking about yes. before we are starting to recycle, we should avoid, right? Yeah. Kind of, I also have a question for you, Christian, if I'm allowed, Hans. Yeah, of course. Um, uh, we saw a lot of examples also by the previous presentation, uh, the online presentation, uh, talking about uh, EU legislation and US legislation. Kind of the big uh, elephant in the room is in my eyes, China. Kind of many people believe they have a quite strict and good, in the meanwhile, surprisingly good, uh, uh, IP regulation and, and IP enforcement. And uh, some would even go that far, uh, even lawyers I talked to, uh, saying kind of you should register your, and now I have to be careful because I'm not remembering if it was copyright, <laughs> trademark or patents, or all three of them. You should go to China with that because that they have one of the strictest, easiest, most affordable legal systems to, 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 to secure your IP. So if I may ask, and of course you can also chip in if you have, what about China in this, in this game? Because they are driving a lot of blockchain initiatives uh, globally. Yeah, so um, yes, you should register your, at least your trademarks. I can only speak about trademarks, but you should register them uh, in China if you have any prospect of uh, doing business there. Uh, because if you are not registering, it can happen that other entities, players in the market are registering your trademarks and then it's difficult to get around those. And in the area of NFTs, actually there, are, um, there have been decisions coming from China to at least, um, I'm, I'm familiar with, um, covering IP and NFTs. So it's, it's interesting they are, are doing, um, the, the, the cases reach the courts in China as well. Uh, and, and people are looking at those as well as it's an important um, an area. I, I'm not familiar with the uh, legislation that's coming mm -hmm. out of mm -hmm. China in, in that area, to be honest. Good. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Are there any more questions? Yes. Okay. Uh, just tell me, and I will repeat it because we don't have a microphone for the audience. But yeah. Okay. Yeah. I will just repeat it yeah. really quickly. So, so Kim wants uh, to know uh, whether uh, it would be of benefit also to uh, register a patent uh, in the space of blockchain. That gave me additional time to think. That's, uh, that's good. <laughs> we can keep doing it that way. Uh, yeah, so patents, it's, it's, we would have to have a discussion like what we are talking about specifically. So patents cover... Uh, technical solutions. So the things that I'm dealing with, they are images, right? They, they, they wouldn't you know, be eligible for patent protection. Of course, in the area of, uh, uh, of, of blockchain technologies, there are patents being filed on 
how you can uh, use blockchain te technology for additional issues and how you can um, solve additional problems for that. Uh, but I'm really not an expert in that area either, so um, I, I couldn't tell you. But what I've been covering, um, that, that's not the area of patents, and you couldn't uh, help yourself with, with patents in that area, um, I think. Yeah, thank you. Right. Yes, thank you very much for the presentation. I have a question. Um, how do you see, for example, smart contracts that are approved by regulator? So, um, when you have a dispute, you go to judge. And many, many, many disputes of the same kind, and you go to judge and solve them. What if you turn it upside down and say, okay, we go to the smart contract to judge, and judges say it's okay, and now everybody who participates in the smart contract is safe. So because very often when you go to lawyers, they consult it, they don't take responsibility. But now, you as a judge, you have to take responsibility to say that the contract is all in a way. So everybody who participates in it is not violating anything. So it gives a freedom for people to participate. Now they know their responsibilities. What's your view on it? Is it possible or not in the future? So uh, you want to know uh, how uh, the relationship between smart contracts, which are basically software computer programs, uh, which um, in the case of NFTs, for example, they, you can uh, send assets from one to another or you can take decisions uh, and so forth, right? So it's like real people using software in order to make something happen digitally. And uh, on the other hand, you have the law, which is non-digital. Uh, in a way, it's a, a law book which describes certain scenarios. And uh, sometimes those two, they basically, they, they don't match. Uh, they, they fall. Yeah, they, they don't come to the same conclusion, right? That's why we go to court first and say, is it according to the law? And you get yes, and then we can use it. You mean an enforcement, basically, of, of uh, it the It sounds to be a bit like common law. You know, in civil law, the difference might be here, uh, play a role. Yeah. yeah I don't know. Right. Now, I, I, will, I will give you one example where, where like this, um, basically this crash between a smart contract and uh, the, the rule of court um, basically happened. So it's exactly the, the case that you mentioned from China. Yeah? So somebody gave somebody else an asset with the help of a smart contract. As you say, basically it's non-returnable because it's, once you've done it with a smart contract, then it's on the blockchain, you cannot return it. Albeit, the court ordered the infringer to uh, basically uh, uh, make the infringement go away. How that happens, 
it's not basically not described in the court uh, uh, documents, but uh, you just apply the law and then you hope that uh, <laughs> the, the smart contract will follow suit with the law. So, so uh, the person from the audience wants to know whether it would be a good idea to, to do a, uh, basically due diligence up front so that the smart contract follows uh, the law. I don't know how, uh, yeah. So uh, the person from the audience also wants to know whether you can get a seal of approval before you actually execute the, the smart contracts. I, I don't know. I, I have no answer to that, actually. But maybe uh, one of you <laughs> guys uh, <laughs> have an answer to that. Uh, yeah. like, I, yeah. I don't have an answer. But it's, yeah. I think it's, a, it's yeah. a very interesting question. It's a, it's a good discussion to be had. I think. Yeah. There are limits, of course, uh, what a smart can contract can do, and um, it's it's black and white typically. You can ask, I think, oracles. There's some some developments there as well, but there I think are limitations of what the smart contract can then execute, right? So that sets limits of what can be handled with those scenarios, right? Uh, but if you are, fall within something that's you know handled on chain, then that could be possible. Whether you could get in advance approval, I'm hesitant to say yes. And I would say that even afterwards, if issues arise, whether people could then actually be barred from going to courts, uh, yeah. I would also be hesitant to say yes. I, I guess there would still be the level of supervision afterwards uh, through the courts, and they could come to different results than the black and white uh, smart contract. So, yeah. But it's, I mean, that's a not a de definitive answer. It's a discussion to be had. I think it's interesting. Yes, another question from the audience. So, well, one of the things that we often see with entities is like the, the metadata um, and immutable metadata. So a lot of entity projects, for example, they point to some metadata that is located somewhere, and in many cases this metadata or not a metadata, So uh, the person from the audience uh, wants to know what basically, like I understood as uh, what happens if you basically buy a digital asset in the, in the form of an NFT and uh, first you, you can actually see the JPEG or whatever is uh, represented by the token but afterwards it disappears 
and then you have an empty token. Is that basically what we were talking about? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You can actually change the questions and make them easier for me. That would be appreciated. Uh, no, but so I don't have a specific case in mind where that has occurred. Um, of, I think the, the the person from the audience also asked uh, um, what is recommended, or you know, I think the you're absolutely right. Like if if the images, the metadata, but the, the images in particular, are then stored on a centralized server, then you know the whole decentralized idea of NFTs is kind of lost, right? So that's uh, so I think there is um, a tendency in the space to make sure or try to have those stored in a decentralized fashion. Then you you mentioned how how that uh, can be uh, obtained, and then if the metadata changes. Uh, I would guess you, like I haven't thought about it, how you could tackle that, but uh, I, I think there should be some relief that you could seek if, if that actually occurs to you, um, contractual maybe, uh, but maybe also beyond that, depending also probably whether you are uh, among the person that initially minted this and if you directly purchased that from the uh, from uh, the source, so to say, or whether you purchased it on maybe on secondary markets. So I would also like when starting to think about this, make a distinction where you actually bought the NFTs. But I don't have a specific case um, that dealt with that already from the courts. Right. I think last question then. Uh, yeah. So the person from the audience uh, is asking uh, what actually happens if uh, you produce uh, and buy NFTs uh, which have uh, which are copyright infringing. So do you um, like who's liable? The producer or the one who buys it? Also, the person of the audience mentions um, sometimes the people know that they are infringing, sometimes they don't. So, well, Chris, that's. Uh, I love the yeah. the, le the yeah. level of the questions. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's good. So, um, like, I don't do copyright every day, so I can switch that to trademarks, um, and then give you also an answer on copyrights afterwards. So, in trademarks, um, actually, that wouldn't be so much of an issue because you would have to use that image as a trademark, and you, as a private entity, just. By buying the, the image, you wouldn't be using that as a trademark. So in trademarks, 
that wouldn't be much of a problem. It would only be a pro become a problem if you are using that image then in a commercial context, right? Then, then it would become a problem. Say you have an image and there's a different trademark on there and then you are using that image as a trademark, then you are infringing and then you as the, the person that is using that image, you would be infringing. Um, in the area of copyright, uh, it's not so much about knowledge, it's, it's about whether you copy something, but um, I would be very surprised if the owner of the copyright would go after you. They would probably go after uh, whoever is the issuer of that collection, right? Because those are the, probably the bad guys that they want to stop and go after and not the, each individual that might be also, in their view, um, uh, violating their rights. But I don't think they would go after them. Um, but then the big problem is also what can they actually do to stop this because uh, if it's on decentralized service, that's uh, tying back to one of the earlier questions, um, then it's difficult to, to stop the infringement and it's, it's uh, you know, you can't get the tokens off uh, the blockchain anyway, so that's a big issue for rights holders. How can they stop infringement and what they, can they do to take things down and there's not much they can do. Right. Thank you very much for your questions. Um, I want to uh, invite all of you out for drinks, but before we do that, um, as promised, uh, there's a little surprise because um, I uh, also have expert knowledge, but it's more knowledge about an expert because it's uh, Chris Tinkoff's birthday today, <laughs> and uh, we brought him a typical Danish uh, K man. Um, it's very hard to show on the camera, so I made a picture of it before okay, I came here. Okay. I will just uh, show it quickly. And um, whilst I do that, um, I want to invite everybody uh, to sing a little happy birthday song <laughs> for uh, Chris. And I would like Rina to turn off my microphone whilst <laughs> we do that. <laughs> Mind you, please. Um, because, yeah, that's not one of, one of my strengths. Um, so this is what it looks like. Oh, wow. Here we go. So, happy birthday, Chris. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you. So, shall we try it? <coughs> happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, lieber Christian. Happy birthday to you. Thank you very much. So I thank you very much, and uh, thanks for tuning in. Also, oh yeah. Sorry for yeah. kind of interrupting the ceremony. Yeah, of kind of, I have a little. We we still thank believe you. in real tokens of appreciation. <laughs> when it comes to our uh, tokens uh, that have uh, some uh, hopefully nice wines, I have to make sure that that is exactly the right. Yeah. Thank you very much for coming, thank and you. for sharing with us your insights and views and a special thanks oh, to Hans thank you. Thank you so much. for organizing this great event and uh, that is also for me the first time after nine years in Denmark that I see a K-man. So <laughs> uh, thank you for that as well. So thanks a lot. Okay. Thank you.